Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Welcome back to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. This is your host, Sherpa Ben Tingi. It is my privilege to welcome some guests to our podcast today, two senior leaders at Atrium Health, Dr. Scott Rissmiller, Deputy Chief Physician Executive, and Colin Lane, Senior Vice President responsible for continuing care and facilities management. Scott, Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having yeah. us. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, well, I'll admit some bias, but I must say our last few episodes have been superb. Uh, we gave our listeners an inside look into Proactive Health, a new value-based primary care model recently launched in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And we also gave an inside look into the South by Southwest conference held in Austin, Texas, and the analogous learning that our innovation Sherpas obtained there. Today, we have invited Dr. Riss Miller and Colin Lane as senior leaders of a large health system with knowledge of business model and disruptive innovation theories to share their perspective about how they, as uh, operational leaders, respond to disruption and apply innovation tools in their work. A friendly reminder to our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and, and then share your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. We're eager to learn about how you and your organizations respond to disruption. So connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, we certainly wouldn't complain if you gave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. Scott, Colin, uh, let's take a minute to have you guys share with us your backgrounds and uh, maybe provide a, a brief description of your current role. Colin, we'll start with you. Oh, Scott. You, uh, <laughs> so first comment, uh, last few episodes were superb. Scott, I think we can do better. What do you think? I, I have very little doubt. Uh, that's challenges the case. on. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> at, least <laughs> we'll be, at least we'll be amusing. A little competitive of us. So uh, background on career, is that what you want, yeah. Ben? So uh, been with CHS or now Atrium Health for 13 years. Uh, have enjoyed all my time here. Uh, started out at CMC as a resident fellow. Went to Mercy. Uh, and then ended up run, running and working for a lot of our regional uh, assets that ultimately came into the family and took over continuing care and recently facilities management in the last year. So excited to be here and had a good run here so far. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Scott. Yeah. Uh, so I've uh, been with Carolina's Healthcare System now, Atrium Health, for 21 years, or coming up next month. Uh, did my internal medicine training at Carolina's Medical Center, where I met my wife, who's a physical medicine rehab physician. Both my kids were uh, born at our main hospital, Carolina's Medical Center. And uh, I started our hospitalist program back in uh, 2000. Sort of grew into physician leadership role as uh, the hospital uh, uh, grew in size and across the geography of North Carolina at our hospitals. My current role, I'm responsible for primary care, adult acute care, which is a, a collection of hospital-based specialties, our behavioral health service line, and our surgery care division. All in all, about 1,400 physicians and a couple hundred ACPs, PAs, and nurse practitioners, as well as leading um, a few system initiatives um, and strategies. So it's been quite a journey. I never started off thinking I would end up where I am now, but that's the fun of the journey, right? Uh, and I love what I do. Terrific. So glad to have you both here. Now to business. Um, you both completed the 
Harvard Business School HBX Executive Education course on disruptive strategy with Clayton Christensen facilitated by the Innovation Engine. What theme or learning that came out of the HBX course has stuck with you the most uh, since you took it? And, and how has it changed the way you approach your work? Scott, let's start with you. You know, I, the easy one to pick there really is the concept of uh, jobs to be done. I, I think so often in all areas of our life and in industry and uh, in healthcare is is true as well. We assume we know what the consumers want, right? And uh, we have a little bit of success, and you start building basically off of that, and you assume, okay, what what I put out there for them before they love, so I, I must be pretty good at this, right? And I think the challenge really is to stop and think, okay, there's a specific reason why our patients, our customers, whatever you want to refer to people um, who are consuming your services, mm-hmm. um, there was a reason why they chose us to begin with. And are we still being true to that? And are we still true to the concepts of convenience and, and those type of things that initially brought them to us? Um, so I, it's been, it was really helpful for me to stop and think, okay, if I'm a patient, what are the jobs that I'm trying to get uh, uh, filled? And uh, it's different based off your age. It's ba- different based off of your your comorbidities or illnesses, mm-hmm. um, your stage of life, everything else. And I'm not sure we always think through that lens. Um, and, and we need to. So it was really beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, we typically think about demographic groups, but uh, as you mentioned, jobs cut across demographics and people of all ages and, and uh, situations can have a similar job to be done. And uh, staying true to that, as you said, is, is critical. What, how about you, Colin? What, what did you uh, yeah, take I mean, away I, you from know, I'm course? glad Scott went first so I can just try to make do better than he did. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I 100% agree with Scott. I mean, I, you know, the first thing when you, when I think about Clayton Christensen, I, the first thing I just jot down is about jobs to be done. Designing things around the consumer, around the things that, that they want instead of what's really best for us has got to be a way of thinking for us for the future. It validates, I think, a lot of the work that Scott and I and and Ben and with, with your with the innovation team, really the things that we've been trying to think about and innovate are really built around those premises. So, you know, I, I think we've made progress. Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, we're there by any means. Um, you know, healthcare is an inefficient market, and so because of that, we see that it's more difficult to design. And obviously, the regulatory elements require us to design things a certain way. And so, really, I like to think of it as if if we try to design things from scratch, really, how would we build it today or for the future? And I think that's a lot of that work is is ongoing. And Scott and I are both on a on a sub market team that really is looking at that that Scott's leading and. Uh, really enjoying kind of looking through that lens, and I think it's the way that will really move the system forward for the future. Terrific. You know, and the the other piece of that, too, is kind of the concept of just good enough. Um, and I think in healthcare, we've, you know, we've built these big hospitals and clinics, and that for a long, long time has been the standard model. If you are really, really sick, you go to the hospital. If you're not really, really sick, you go to the clinic. And it's kind of one one size fits all, right? And I think just a recognition, you know, as you're trying to serve every need with just two models, you really have to, uh, you know, build it up to be able to meet all the needs. And as you build it up, 
cost goes up as well. So for the person who has a minor need, they still have to go to a clinic that cares for people with pretty severe needs, right, and has all the resources to care for both. So I think that's, you know, one of the things where we've been guilty in, in healthcare across the nation and I think in industry, other industries as well is you try and build the best thing for the patient. But if you're not thinking about, the, again, back to the different jobs to be done and tailoring services for their specific needs, you know, you can you can wind up where healthcare is kind of today. So I really enjoy sort of thinking through that lens of, OK, if if I have this problem, what's the easiest and the best way yeah. and the most appropriate cost structure and everything and convenience and everything else to get that that uh, service met rather than just the clinic? or the hospital choices yeah. we've had in the past. Right. Well, and then with the advent of a lot of the technology solutions, et cetera, you know, how do we begin to layer those in to really begin to disrupt ourselves? I mean, that, you know, that's one of the things that from Clayton Christensen that I'll, you know, one more thing to add is, you know, how do you, you really, it's very difficult to disrupt yourself, but I think the way that we're compartmentalized to a degree allows us to do that. And I believe that we're also thinking about things the right way in the population health front that we may have to create other separate entities to really fully disrupt ourselves. So I don't think that we're not thinking about those things. There's a willingness to disrupt ourselves as an organization. Uh, and uh, I think we're pursuing a lot of the strategies that will allow us to effectively do that for the future. No, I agree. Yeah. I loved your reference, uh, Scott, to just good enough. I mean, the, the low-end disruption. So often in healthcare, we've designed for the ability to provide the – for every possible permutation that, that could happen, right. uh, every, every service imaginable that a patient could, could need um, rather than – creating a good enough solution that can help a much broader number of people. Right. Um, yeah. Do you, do you hear that, Colin? That was one for me. He, he said I know, he I know. He point. gave you a nod. He liked right. your point better than mine. <laughs> it's, it, we, we have a long, long ways to go before the podcast I'm crying inside right over. now, Scott. <laughs> You'll get me back. <laughs> as, as healthcare moves towards a, a true population health model, um, the patient's home becomes – uh, a more prominent area of focus for uh, disruption opportunities. And, and I went to the Mayo Clinic Transform Conference with, with Jay Gerhardt um, last year, and, and we heard Clayton Christensen talk about this in a presentation that he gave there where he uh, had this diagram about um, eventually every service that is currently provided in a hospital, we need to figure out a way to deliver it better in the next level lower uh, care setting, and then the things that we're doing there move it down to the next setting. And so there are tons of things that are maybe currently occurring in a primary care physician's office or um, in an urgent care that maybe we can take care of at home, whether virtually or through some other type of technology. And, and Jay and I talked about that a little bit in episode four, but I'm curious about what your opinions are about the role of the home in advancing population health. You want to start, Colin? Uh, sure. Um so obviously, I'm a big proponent of home-based care. Uh, one of my big responsibilities is our home health, uh, home medical equipment, home infusion services, as well as our home hospice, so end-of-life care and, and, to a degree, advanced palliative care in the home, which Scott and I have partnered on. I do think, and a lot of the ways that we've geared our structure and our services is really trying to design things that – um, 
you know, we do the have the best outcome for the lowest cost, right? Mm-hmm. So the best outcome, the best experience. And you know, there is a lot of data and literature that says that patients will do better in the home regardless because they're happier there, they can sleep more, they can have more control of their diet. Um, so there's a lot of you know facets, and obviously with family around them and and a support structure. So the environment is important. I think that we'll continue to see uh, a continued march towards the home for certain services. That being said, I still think with you know the population longevity, people living longer, I still think you're going to see probably a higher level and degree of complexity in the hospital setting. Hmm. But we'll see some of that middle acuity, lower acuity begin to shift towards home-based options, whether or not that means uh, a clinician in the home or uh, combined with a virtual aspect or virtual specifically for scalability uh, purposes. So I'm a big proponent of the home. I think we can do a lot there. Um, I still think technology hadn't caught up to all the things that we want to do in the home, but I see some disruption in the market uh, that's occurring, and we're starting to see home-based uh, uh, physicians enter the market. I think we just saw Blue Cross Blue Shield is partnering with, a, um, mind you, a uh, uh, private equity firm-led uh, group who obviously that's where a lot of the money is. To try to disrupt some of these things around the around the uh, on the spectrum, but you know they, they partnered with them because they're going to provide physicians in the home, and really they're not doing the broader primary care, you know, or any hospital based care. They're really trying to disrupt. It's really actually pretty fascinating. They're trying to disrupt the pace model, and I don't know if you know the pace model is actually an innovation model that the government instituted probably 40, 30 years, well, probably 30 years ago. And it's a program for all-inclusive elderly program. And so they're really going after those patients that end up in nursing homes and trying to skirt the the nursing home stay because that's really expensive for the payers. Huh. I personally like the PACE aspect versus the home-based care for that population. But for some that have a good environment and support structure and uh, can afford it, I think that's actually a great solu- potential solution. But um, I still think we'll see some more entrance and technology enabling some of this stuff. But uh, but I do think the home will play a big role. It won't replace the hospital. It's just the hospital will take on a different role. So you institutional care is still critical. And the only way you can really care for these patients in an affordable, for really high acuity patients in an affordable manner is to have them in an institution where you can share your resources across. So I still think, you know, I'm not really quite on the Jetsons as it relates to the. <laughs> I was going to use this. That. Come on, dude. <laughs> you just took it. Give me, give me a nod at least. Yeah. Got to get a win at uh, some point. I'd, I'd give Colin two points for that response. Yeah, no, so, that was so good. Scott, so, let's see. Anyway, so that, that, that's what, what you say. I, I, but so I think I know Scott agrees with me and yeah. uh, on, on some of those points, and but he's got a different perspective, I think, is provides a little more color. Yeah, no, I agree at all the points, and mostly I agree with them because you've drilled them in my head over the years, to be honest with you. I, Colin's done an amazing job over the years of in every meeting, every setting, you know, I say, hey, can we do that in the office? And Colin goes, can we do that? at home um and it's and i think it's the right conversation to have you know um it it all starts at home people want to be at home and there's a spectrum you know there's the 
complex chronic, the very sick people, the people who are currently in the hospital, people who may go to a nursing home, can we care for those at at home? And then there's the other spectrum, which is the healthy population who do they need to be seen you know, twice a year by their primary care physician if they don't really have, or even once a year. You know, can we through technology, through you know the the, the smart watches the and phones yeah. and the wearables and those type things, the scales, to uh, really engage patients um, who have intermittent or mild disease um, or or even healthy to interact with us in a way uh, that allows them to maintain their health, promote their health. And, and to stay at home. So that, that I think there's a, a lot of opportunity there. You know, uh, one of the things that I think really is going to need to happen for this to accelerate and, you know, I, is, is reimbursement to be aligned with care at home. And we think it's, everyone thinks it's the right thing to do and we do a lot of it, but the reimbursement um, from the payers and that Medicare and those type things aren't quite there yet. So I think that's an opportunity for, to lower cost for care by aligning um, sort of the reimbursement model with that. You know, a couple areas clinically where we've uh, we've done this, um, you know, with the recent flu that we had here that yeah. was so severe across the country, we really uh, made the uh, uh, decision as healthcare providers that we, one, it was a public health issue to have those patients in our offices exposing staff, doctor, other physician, or physicians, and the patients in the waiting room to the flu. And also patients, when you have the flu, you don't feel like getting off the couch, right? You want to you stay at home. So we really, with the help of our primary care physicians, our uh, primary care leader, Dr. Al Hudson, you know, really allowed us to use their names. When one of their patients would call into our call centers with flu-like symptoms, if it was a Dr. Hudson patient, Dr. Hudson said, gave the operator the ability to say, your primary care physician, Dr. Hudson, recommends you do a virtual visit. From your house, and let me walk you through how to do that. And and we uh, in January and February did more virtual visits um, uh, in those two months than we did in the entire year of 2017. Wow. And the patients loved it. I had 4.9 out of five star rating on it. Um, the convenience was great. And the thing we know about the virtual visits is there's an initial um, hurdle to get over just from it's uncomfortable the first time you yeah. do it, right? But we have over a, 40% of our businesses repeat uh, customers or patients. So once they try it once, they, they like it. Uh, the other area that we have really have done it, uh, done sort of the in-home stuff a bit is in, in uh, with the complex chronic and the, and the high-risk readmission patients. So patients who get discharged from uh, the hospital who have predetermined sort of markers of high risk for readmission and high risk for needing help at home. Um, we have set up sort of a transition clinic with a physician and ACPs and a care team. And part of that care team is a paramedicine team or partnering with home health to go into the home to do a home assessment with uh, a portable device like an iPad or what have you and can do a virtual visit with the physician uh, in the home with the patient. And 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 it was when we first started this up, uh, we thought that would be a nice thing to have and it's turned out to pre- be one of the most important tools we actually had to be able to uh, do that because patients in those situations are are so sick and and uh, so weak that they really can't make their appointments. And it's either call 911 and go back to the hospital or, or us in the home. So that's really been um, a, a great use of or example of in-home care. And I think it's just scratching the surface. I think there's so much more opportunity. But again, it's a little bit early 
Um, and again, the reimbursement is going to have to al- align with all that for large scale to be able to happen. But I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and as Colin said, there's there's that challenge of innovating within those guardrails of regulations and reimbursements. That's right. But, but, but I mean, a shout forward. out again to the. I mean, the, it's funny we can actually see emergency department utilization go down, urgent care utilization, and urgent care and the sorry virtual care go up. For the one of the first times in one of the biggest flu seasons yeah. that we can remember, yeah. there's mean. also the aspect, and this is what I love about it, is every patient that had the flu that did a virtual visit wasn't somewhere where they could give it to someone else. That's right. So, so if you really think about that, as uh, I think it's pretty a powerful, uh, powerful point. To, I think it's a great thing, and and the way they were able to work and steer those patients to. Really, a lower cost and more appropriate setting was was a big win. Yeah, real population health. Yeah, terrific. Thinking about your respective businesses, what do you think the future holds for your areas, and what are you working on today to help uh, the organization move closer to that future? I'll I'll start this one. So we talked, we touched on it a second ago, you know, with the really matching the appropriate services and cost structure and expertise with the patient need. And, and, you know, more than ever, we have entered into a time of consumerism. You know, it's the Amazons and everyone else in the world have, have made people very savvy in regards to the convenience and costs and those type things. And we're seeing it big time these days in healthcare. And it's a great thing. It's the right thing to happen, and and we need to respond to that. And and so we're really starting to focus on again looking at our populations um, and the way a twenty five thirty five health year old healthy person wants to interact with our healthcare system and get their uh, needs met is very different than from the sixty five to seventy five who might have multiple health issues. And again, we have to be sure we're reaching. Uh, those patients in the way that they want to interact with us and receive their health care, or someone else will do it for them, right? Or they just won't receive it. So really trying to focus on that aspect of what is the uh, most appropriate level of service to provide for the job to be, to meet the job to be done in a way that we're comfortable with the quality and care and those type things, but at the lowest cost point as well. Um, and not, uh, sort of cookie cutter one size, uh, uh, fits all. So that's, that's something that, that really excited about looking at from that. And then the other piece is really sort of the digital and, uh, aspect of things. We are behind in healthcare, I believe, uh, in general in regards to sort of the way we interact with our patients from a digital and convenient standpoint. So, online scheduling, your medical records online, um, all of those kind of basic things that were done 10 years ago by other industries, right, uh, we're just now sort of figuring out. Um, and we're making really good strides and steps towards that. So um, th- that's really the the main areas of focus right now. If I was to look at it from a jobs to be done kind of thing is yeah. meeting the patient's where they want to be met. We're completely redesigning our primary care model right now under the leadership of Dr. Al Hudson and really going to a team-based care where the physician is is a a captain of the team, but back to the um, jobs to be done, we have now multiple people on the team. So if you have a minor issue, 
you don't have to wait in a waiting room to see the doctor. You can do a virtual visit and it's a set price and you know what it is and, and it's lower than seeing the doctor and you get your job to be done, which is, you know, a prescription if you need one or those type things for uh, upper respiratory infection or whatever it is. We have ACPs, uh, nurse practitioners and, uh, and PAs in the office that are seeing also the lower acuity stuff in the office and the more stable stuff really freeing up the doctor for the higher acuity stuff that really needs their time and expertise. So, and each one of those has sort of a different cost structure associated with it. So we're increasing access, which increases convenience. You can get an appointment when you need it. Um, and also we're lowering the cost structure by making sure that it's the appropriate level of care. And again, back to how I started, it's not just hospital clinic. We have a lot of options within all yeah. of those. Can you beat that, Colin? Let's see. No, I'm just going to piggyback. Yeah. So, so understand I, I we like, do, we're doing all this work together. I, I like so. listening. <laughs> I like listening to it because it really allows you to think about the themes. And so, I just wanted to kind of pick out a theme that really uh, resonates with me. Is you know, healthcare is a deeply personal thing for consumers, right? For all of us. So, being able to offer options. Because the jobs to be done isn't just one job to be done there. So because it's so personal, people have preferences and things that they're comfortable with because of how confidential and personal it all is. And so the more options, the way we design it around what we believe meets those needs, I think the more successful we'll be. So that that is really what continues to resonate with me. And then also the fact that Scott and team are continuing to innovate the current models of care, which aren't necessarily broken, it's just they can be improved upon. Yeah. So, it's this continuous process, you know, performance improvement aspect that I think um, isn't uh, a typical precedent in healthcare. At least not in the delivery. It was typically around the provider and the convenience of the provider, whoever was delivering the care, instead of what the patient needed. So, I think. Changing that lens, really flipping the flipping it on the on it on its end, and then trying to diversify the offerings, I think is really what what that team has done a great job. Sounds real easy. When, it, it sounds say, easier, it's really than, hard. but it, yeah, it's culture. It's yeah. a ton of work. It's really culture, and it's really getting the the people who do the hard work. The people, you know, it's the providers. They're leading this That's right. charge. So. They are. We wouldn't be successful if they hadn't recognized, and all we are, you know, I'm just a support mechanism and enabler to help them be successful. Yeah, so that, those are the people really doing the, the, the hard work and the, the, the good work that really um, is really the vision for Atrium Health for the future. Yeah, just so. the, just like how disruptive innovation with uh, a disruptive business model, the technology behind it isn't the disruption itself, but it's the enabler. And mm-hmm. it's the it's the business model that's the real disruption. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we we touched on a theme, um, and Colin, you, you mentioned something, and and I want to ask this question that might take us a little bit further down this path. So, how do you balance as as senior leaders the competing demands of optimizing today's business model while looking to the future and preparing for a new business model right. in the future. So it's kind of like uh, there's five seconds left in the football game and you close your eyes and heave the ball as hard as you can. There's a little <laughs> bit of a hope and a prayer there. No, I'm kidding. But, um, you know, my, my, what I'm getting at is it, it's not easy to balance it, right? So uh, we ha- we are a mission-based organization. So – we have to be able to be smart in how we operate the business in order to fund the mission. 
It's as simple as that. We're not doing it to make money. We're doing it to be able to continue to fulfill the mission. So, you know, I I like – to me, that's really one of the big reasons that I'm here and not in the for-profit industry or anywhere else because this is a mission-based organization and there really is a a, a real purpose to what we do. So um, I want to take it on – there's two angles to look at it. So I'm – because Scott's got the clinical piece, I can't compete with him there. I'm going to take it on a little bit different angle, or at least Hold a new on. level, a, a of new market disruption. Hold on. So no, so so one of the things that we're looking at, so facilities management. Okay, so our so uh, I love this Warren Buffett quote. It's uh, the hallmark of, of a of a great organization is efficient use of capital, right? And so we're a big capital intensive organization. And so, and a lot of that's in bricks and mortar. Okay. So just to spell out what I'm talking about. And so, you know, we have a lot of aging facilities, a lot of aging plants. So we're trying to figure out, well, okay, there are ways to disrupt that by investing in one, the clinical services that drive patients away from facilities into non-capital intensive environments. So that's one angle to look at it, but it's also, I have to have a degree of efficiency in how I build new capital infrastructure. And so one of the cool things we're looking at is really trying to disrupt and turn the construction industry on its head is instead of the traditional model of design, bid, build, which is where people, you, you, you pay an architect to draw a building, the architect, then we take it to a contractor and we bid it and then we go build it, we're really trying to flip it on its head and say, well, really, we want to design, manufacture, assemble. And so there's a way that maybe we can move towards a prefabricated model, which makes it sound cheap, but it's actually infinitely more efficient and better built than a concurrent built site because it's really based on lean standards if we could do that, you can um, – in the traditional model, it's a plateau cost structure. So if I build 50 units or 100 units, it costs the same. It's just per unit, right? But in a manufacturing environment, the more units you build, the lower your cost per unit. And so we believe there's a more efficient way that we can do things mm-hmm. cheaper, so faster, better, cheaper, so better product – less expense. And so that's really a big affordability initiative we have is um, to be able to fund our infrastructure, we've got to do it smarter. And so we're trying to partner with industry in ways to to really do it differently and do it better. And so that's been a cool thing that I've been interested in and, and being able to see kind of how it, uh, it, how it can work. And uh, um, you know, we could save nine to twelve months off of a of a three year construction schedule um, because while you're building your infrastructure, your rooms are concurrently being built mm-hmm. in a manufacturing environment. That's cool. Uh, anyway, so I just figured I'd take a little bit of a different tack because Scott's got the clinical <laughs> realm pretty much. No, 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 yeah. that, no. But that is that's that's amazing stuff, and uh, we're already starting to see the benefit of of that change in thinking and those type things. Uh, because we do have pretty severe capacity constraints, um, and Colin's leading the uh, the charge to fix that, and, and everyone's going, wait, we can't wait four months, four years, uh, five years for buildings to be built, and he's he's really sped that up. So, 
That's exciting stuff. In in regards to the the clinical side of things, you know, for the foreseeable future, I think the traditional primary care delivery system is going to be needed, wanted, desired, right? Um, and but we have to make it better. Um, so we have to have iterative improvement change in the traditional primary care. So that's our main engine. If you look at primary care. And I've tasked and we have great leaders leading um, our primary care work to continue to make it more accessible to the patient, higher quality, better experience, lower cost. Yeah, sustaining innovation. That's right. Thank you. Um, and we have purposefully set to the side under a different leadership structure a more innovative sort of look at primary care. And you, I think you heard on uh, uh, past podcasts, right, uh, uh, proactive health. And purposely put that in a different structure with different leadership, with different expectations. Because we we truly get the fact that if you try and innovate and you try and do what Dr. Widener is doing with proactive health underneath the behemoth of traditional primary care, which is still great and they're doing great work, it's going to get lost in the numbers and sort of smothered. Um, so that is one way that we are really trying to look at how to continue to uh, uh, improve what is our core and what we have traditionally done well, but at the same time have an eye towards the future. And, you know, personally, I can see a day where uh, the thing that is kind of the little innovative thing over here on the side grows and becomes as big or bigger than the traditional. And that'll take time. So we want to run both, but we want to make sure we're not uh, we're not smothering sort of the uh, embers of innovation there. Um the other things, too, is we're continually looking to technology and what are other people doing out there. So we talked about the virtual visits and those type things, the digital uh, experience, how to um, how to engage with patients in asynchronous ways and um, and through technology and those type things. So I think looking across the industry, I mean, if, if Amazon can uh, find a way to take uh, basically a larger percentage of my monthly paycheck than the federal government <laughs> and, so, and somehow make me feel good about that. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the truth. Yeah, there's things to be learned there. Uh, so we we look out outside industry and what are they doing and, and try to incorporate it into healthcare. Yeah, I thought those were both great examples of dual transformation, optimizing your your current business while looking to the future and and preparing for tomorrow's business model and, yeah. and using the the competencies and strengths and resources of the core business to fund the work that you're doing um, for tomorrow's business model. Right. Great yep. examples, both. Um, maybe one or two more questions and, and we'll wrap it up. You'll often hear uh, as disruptive innovation theory is discussed – that uh, incumbent organizations are are given short shrift and, and described as slow and rigid when responding to low-end or, or new market disruptions. However, established organizations, they have a lot of advantages over those upstart startups <laughs> um, nipping at, at, at their heels. And so what, what advantages do you believe established healthcare systems have over entrant competitors? Let me call on. Yeah, um, take a so, that one. well, one is, I mean, uh, assuming that uh, uh, an organization, an incumbent organization has been successful, typically they're more well capitalized. And if they're smart and big enough and mature enough, then they've invested in some level of, of innovation. You know, I, I think good organizations that don't rest on their laurels uh, really anticipate where the business is going. And there are a lot of businesses that are incumbent who've been able to stay ahead of the curve. And so, you know, I believe that, you know, we have 
tried to do that. Healthcare is a little interesting and makes it a little more complicated. And I've talked about that market efficiency thing a little bit because yeah. of the regulatory and, and a lot of that, that, that creates some some different challenges. But I still think that, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate and I think that we've tried to think about that. And that's really evidenced in a lot of the work that, that Scott is leading right now. It doesn't mean that it's ever stops. You can't ever stop. And a lot of that goes to leadership. And I think the leadership has wanted to make investments in things that sometimes didn't have a direct return, but maybe an intuitive return uh, in terms of uh, paying dividends down the road, not necessarily monetarily, but in terms of process and improve uh, in terms of the delivery model, et cetera. So we've been very fortunate. I think that we have been smart in the use of that capital um, you know, Scott, I'd be curious what yeah. you think. No, I, I think it's exactly just what you said, and I'll just sort of uh, expand off that a little bit more. You know, the one thing that we have currently is the relationship with the patients, right, um, and hopefully the trust. And uh, but that is going to last as long as uh, someone uh, as we earn it, right? And and all it takes is for someone to come in with a uh, uh, high quality, but better experience, um, lower cost ex, uh, uh, delivery system. And, and, and that will come into question, right? Our, that those relationships, we have that. And we also have, um, the continu- continuity of care and the continuum across, um, where what you're seeing out there nationally right now, at least in my readings and experiences is you have a lot of, as Colin pointed out, venture capital and other people getting into very niche areas, very targeted, and that's a threat. But what they don't have is they don't have the full continuum uh, that we have. So shame on us if we do not change in the ways that we've talked about to be able to provide what these niche players are trying to go after and still have the full continuum. If we do that well, we'll keep the patients. If not, we're going to be at risk, as we should be. So I think, uh, you know, that that is, uh, I think, for large organizations, again, as Colin said, we the capital, we have the relationships with the patients, we have scale, we have the continuum. And we're vulnerable um, if someone else can come in here and do it at a lower cost for mm-hmm. uh, more convenience at the same quality. If we can do that with the, the traditional structure and, um, and, and resources and that that we've had in Continuum, then I think we're going to be pretty successful in the future. And, and that's why we're racing towards it because the one thing that the uh, – as you pointed out, the one things that the niche areas, the metric cattle people have, they have speed to market – and they can iterate quickly, um, and we're a bit slower. But as Colin pointed out as well, uh, the one thing about this healthcare system is we have used our resources to invest in things early before there was any thought of a return. Virtual care is a good one um, to think about. We've been doing that for years with zero reimbursement, but we knew it was the right thing to do, and we also knew that it would uh, help build the muscle mm-hmm. of how to do it when it really became a significant way to deliver care. Um, so uh, this organization has been smart in doing that, and that's why I've been here 21 years because uh, I, I love that working for that kind of organization. That's great. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Colin, Scott, thank you both for uh, uh, your time, and, and it's been a wonderful learning experience for me um, to hear your perspectives about how you as senior leaders in the healthcare organization um, respond to disruption in the healthcare industry. Thank you both. Oh, yeah. our pleasure. Glad to be here. Always like talking to you, Ben and Scott. 
You're a good dude. All right. Yeah. Well, what was the tally Love board you. at the end? <laughs> <laughs> I figured Jay would – and Jay, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes from our Sherpas and uh, some more guests. This is Ben Tingey. Until next time. like on at least one major edit. <laughs> All right, that was fine.